I'm Kimber Russell, a producer for Law School Transparency. This is LST's miniseries about women in the law. Today we are recording in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at Wake Forest University. Along with the show's executive producer, Kyle McEntee, we are moderating a roundtable discussion about sexism in the legal workplace. Let's meet our participants. I'm Larry Fine. I am a North Carolina district court judge, and I've been on the bench for 15 and a half years. I'm Marae Clough, and I'm an assistant federal public defender in the Middle District of North Carolina, and I've been doing that for seven years. I'm Clara Cottrell. I'm counsel at BASF Corporation, and I've been in that role for the past three years. Catherine Arrowwood. I'm a partner with Parker Poe Adams and Bernstein and a past president of the North Carolina Bar Association. Shannon Gilreath, professor of law and professor of women's gender and sexuality studies here at Wake Forest. Allison Ashcard, I'm the assistant director of the Office of Career and Professional Development at Wake Forest University School of Law. This is Kyle McEntee. I'm the executive director of Law School Transparency. During the show, we heard about how common incorrect job titles are for women lawyers, court reporters, paralegals, assistants, etc. Is this a mistake that you've made? It isn't a mistake that I've made, but it's happened to me on um, more than one occasion. And I think the one that was most surprising to me is it didn't happen by a male. It actually happened by a female. Um, And there was an instance when I went to court one day and we didn't get the opportunity to check in with the clerk prior to the call getting started. And so when the judge uh, realized that a lot of pro se litigants were um, coming forth, the judge stopped court and asked for the attorneys to come check in. I was dressed in my suit. I walked in the line to check in. And the judge said, I said, attorneys. I didn't realize the judge was talking to me. And again, the judge said, I said, attorneys. And I looked up and I said, Your Honor, I am an attorney, at which the judge, who was a female, said to me, Oh, I forgot we had female attorneys. I was absolutely shocked. How old was the judge? She probably was in her mid-50s. Now, I've been practicing now almost 25 years, and so this was probably almost 25 years ago, but this wasn't the first time I had appeared before that judge. Have you ever found yourself making kind of assumptions like that about any people in your office or mistaking them for a role that they weren't actually fulfilling? Does anybody want to own up to that? I'll I'll talk about that. Um, That's something that I think I try to pay a lot of attention to. And that is the idea that the person and so I'm I'm working in a in a company. So there's people of all different shapes and sizes who are doing lots of different roles, not just legal roles. And so for me, I have to remember that the people that I'm interacting with and and talking to that woman across the table from me or the woman that I'm talking to in the coffee room, she could be an assistant. She could be a vice president very easily. And so that's something that I always try to keep in mind is that at any time who I could be talking to could have any role under the sun within this large company. On the same sort of theme of mistaken identities, I want to talk about kind of diminutives and things like sweeties, honeys, darlings. I remember when I first started practicing law, which was a very long time ago, um, one lawyer in particular who was an old friend of my dad's, who was also a lawyer, his favorite thing to do is to come running up to you and go, sugar in the morning, and give you a big hug and kiss you. 
and it was rather disgusting, quite honestly, <laughs> and I will not name who it is. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's still, a, I think, a more, much more common thing that you find in the South that, you know, you can, you can turn it right around, and that's what I've always done. Uh, I, I call people, honey, sweetie, you know, they call me that, I call it to them right back. And, you know, it sometimes is intended to put you in your place, but sometimes it isn't, and, and you really have to kind of figure out what situation it is. Well, what are some other coping mechanisms that maybe our, our female panelists have developed in order to deal with these sorts of diminutive situations? I put on a thick accent and go, hey, darling. <laughs> I wonder, do, would you ever or have you ever just told someone politely, please don't address me that way. It's not appropriate. I have not because typically the people who address me that way are people who are not expecting that I'm going to be very effective. And I just assume they continue to believe that because then I can run all over so you let it go as a matter of strategy. I do, indeed. I do, indeed. Yeah, that's that's been my method as well, is to make it go as long as possible. I realize that the fact that individuals underestimate me can sometimes work to my benefit. And I was sort of joking. I mean, the the whole thick accent thing. But usually I just end up, and, if, and for people who know me, I sort of smile through a lot of things. I'm just, I'm that kind of very positive person. And so... I guess make a decision to to look at those kinds of comments as being more of the, um, I think it was mentioned in, earlier as a, a genteel and a sort of way you were raised and not as a she can't do it or she isn't going to be capable. A lot of situations, I think, are how you how you address them and how you respond to them and how you react to them can drive the relationship a lot. If you if you find it inappropriate and you look at somebody a certain way, they know it's inappropriate without you having to say anything. And then you continue on. We've heard from many of the people that we interviewed that there is this tendency to diminish women in the legal profession instead of according them basic honorifics. So as opposed to calling you Miss Cottrell, they would say Clara. Well, usually they can't pronounce my name, so I've got that working for me. <laughs> but um, I think what happens is that because they don't know how to pronounce my name, they end up butchering my name. And I usually would prefer for them to just say, how would you, how do you say your name? But I will say that invariably, if they don't say it correctly, I fail to correct them because I just assume, well, they're trying their best. Catherine Cockrell in the podcast described a time when she was asked to get coffee. How do you draw the line between when a request is reasonable and when it's clearly inappropriate? Well, that's happened to me more times than I can count. And my mom and daddy always told me to be very polite. And, you know, it's not beneath you to go get coffee or beneath you to make copies. And so generally, you know, you pitch and you just get it done because you're part of the team. But I'll never forget when a partner in my firm and I was had been with her maybe five years. We had a summer clerk sitting in the room, and we're getting ready to try a very big case, and I was going to be second chair on the case, and he looked at me, and he said, Catherine, will you please go make these copies? And I looked at him, and I said, why, Ed? I'd be absolutely delighted to. I took it, and then I turned to the summer clerk, and I said, John, will you please go make these copies? And he got the point. I never had to, never again had to say, don't do that to me. But he was clearly asking me, because I was the girl in the room. So, Catherine, have you seen this evolve over the last however many years of practice for you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, after 10 years of law practice, people didn't ask me to do that very much anymore. Was that related to growing awareness that it was a problem or your senior status at the firm? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, I, you know, I still see this kind of stuff happen in cases I'm involved in with particularly the young women who are, who are on the other side of the table. And it's very disturbing because partners in firms these days often do not put the young women in their firm first and let them be first chair in trials. They're sitting back there, a key ingredient in the case, but they're not, not getting the first chair experience they ought to have. And to me, that's just a different version of, will you please go make the copies? Um, and I think it's actually a key problem that we have today because there are so few women seasoned trial lawyers. And the reason is because they don't get first chair experience. Do you think that comes down to there being still a good old boys network? Yeah, I think there is. And I really, a large part of it has to do, despite very valiant efforts to put women out front, despite all of that, you still see in-house counsel in particular having a hard time seeing a woman as the lead on a trial team. I think it's getting better as we have more and more women general counsel. But I think women general counsel are just as subject to that bias uh, as, as the male general counsel are, because they're reporting to a board of directors or a CEO who's typically male. So Shannon, through your research, how have you seen ways of breaking through these norms? Well, you know, I, I thought it was interesting listening to the women speak about their experiences because I was struck by how few of them seem to be willing to call people on obviously gendered behavior in the workplace. Uh, one woman said, you know, you have to pick your battles. One woman says you can't change individuals, you know. And of course, I'm completely sympathetic with um, how difficult that is in the professional situation. But I think some of the best advice I received was from the poet Maya Angelou, who taught here at Wake Forest for many years. And she said to me once, if you want to be courageous, start in small ways. And I think it's absolutely crucial that men and women in the workplace stand up and say, this is not okay. This sort of gendered treatment is not okay. This amounts to sex discrimination, whether you know it or not. And, you know, it shouldn't continue. It's a difficult thing to do, I think. But I also think when you're a feminist, you are also an optimist by definition, and you believe people can change. It's just like being in court, right? You can't expect a court to rule in your favor on an argument you never made. And in the same way, you can't expect to change people's minds if you don't inform them about what it is they're doing that isn't right. So Judge Fine, do you see this as a kind of role you can play in your court? Well, it really depends on how it might present itself. Typically, in my court, in a district court, it's not going to really, I have not seen it much in court. We have many, many very competent women attorneys who I think are treated equally th that I've seen. Now, I, I am aware of some situations, a very, very dear friend of mine who is no longer with us, I remember her telling me, uh, and this is when I was in practice, so it's a good many years ago, that she refused to join the Women's Attorney Association because she said, I am not a woman attorney. I am an attorney, period. So I think that is a way of combating but it doesn't necessarily filter into the courtroom. One of the struggles that I have had is that sometimes it's not the 
partner or the fellow lawyer who's putting the pressure for the male attorney to be the first chair. It's actually the client who's saying, I don't want her to be first chair. I don't want her to handle my case. And I was wondering how, Catherine, what what suggestions you would have in those circumstances. Well, I'll give you a very concrete example because that has happened to me, but it actually turned out to be the reverse. I had worked very hard on a case, but we're getting the case ready for trial. And I did the whole trial outline. I signed everybody whose witness, who was going to do which witness, all that. Had the whole thing put together. And he said, well, you know, why do you think you're going to be trying this case? And I said, well, because you sent me to take the worst deposition in the case. I think I should should be at the table trying this case. And he said, well, this was an arbitration. We're going to have three men arbitrators, and um, I don't think we should have a woman lawyer sitting at the table. And I said, well, okay. Um, thank you very much, John. Um, I don't believe I'm going to be working on the case. And I just hung up on him because I didn't know what to say. And I went to see my law partner, who was the partner who brought the case in, and I said, Bob, this is what has just happened. Um, I don't want to mess up the client's case. And I think that's one of the things we have to keep in mind when we're challenging these situations is that you always have to have the client's interest at heart. And I said, I think the thing for me to do here is is to resign. Uh, clearly, the client must not want me sitting at the table, or John would not have said that. And my partner said that he would go to the mat for me and would complain about it. And I said, I would prefer that you not do that because clearly the client doesn't want me sitting at the table. And if that's the case, that's fine. Well, five hours later, my phone rings. It's the client who says, who said you're not going to try this case? And he told the other lawyer that either I was going to be sitting at the table and, and lead on the case or this other lawyer would get fired. It all kind of worked out. But I, I think we can't lose sight of the fact that the client's preferences are something that, you know, we we will have a very difficult time changing directly, but you can do it over time. And you do have to, you know, at the conclusion of a case, if I have felt like the client did not see me as an equal partner in putting the case together, I could detect that there was some kind of hesitation. You're letting me do things on the case. I want to learn from this. Can you tell me, you know, were you hesitant because I wasn't as good at doing this or for some other reason? But in your situation, the reason you weren't trying the case had nothing to do with the client. As it turned out. And I thought it did um, because I couldn't imagine this lawyer, you know, having sent me off to do all this heavy lifting in this case, would own his own motion decide I shouldn't be up there. I mean, to me, it's the client's decisions. I was very lucky, as it turned out, the client, who may have felt that way, quickly changed their mind. But that's why I think you have to fight the battles. Now, you don't fight every single battle, but you can't win a war without fighting the individual battles. I don't think you can wait for a war to be won and then just kind of walk in behind it. You, you have to go in and fight those battles. But that was why I refused to take second chair. I was either going to do it first chair or not at all. But at the same time, get out of the way if that's what the client's preference was. But I think to go back to Shannon's point, prior to coming to Wake Forest, I I was in a large law firm and I had a situation where I was very uncomfortable and I raised it with the male partner who I was working with. And I think when you don't have people who look like you, who understand how you perceive situations, um, sometimes it's difficult for... Um, the people you're talking with to understand and and deal with it. 
And so when I presented to the male partner how I felt about a situation um, that I was very uncomfortable with, it was sort of like, oh, okay, we hear you, but then nothing ever happened. And so if there, if there aren't people in the hierarchy who understand and who can do something about it, then, you know, speaking up sometimes doesn't get you anywhere. Hello, I'm Suzanne Reynolds, Dean of Wake Forest Law School. At Wake Forest, we educate the whole person for a professional lifetime. Our commitment to create citizen lawyers is reflected in our graduates who seek purpose-filled lives in the spirit of our motto, Pro Humanitate. I want to ask this of Murray. Now, in the, in the show, Dr. Elizabeth Dickinson describes something known as imposter syndrome, which is when high-achieving individuals have an inability to internalize their accomplishments, and they have a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. So what factors do you think contribute to an individual feeling or not feeling that way? When she was talking about her experience and, and going to court and the judge asking, will all the lawyers come forward? Uh, you know, I wish I had a dollar for every time I go to court or to a jail or to visit a client and they say, when's the lawyer coming? Or are you the interpreter? Most of the time it's the judge saying, and this hasn't happened in, in any time in any in Forsyth County, but typically when I go to other counties that are sort of Surrey, Stokes, other places, more rural areas, it's always, when's the lawyer coming and are you the interpreter? I used to say, it's a good week when they wouldn't ask me if I was the interpreter. And just that feeling of my accomplishments aren't being recognized. I decided, well, I'll just keep on going to school and maybe I'll just bring my resume with me. And when the, the client says, When's the lawyer coming? I'll say, well, look, here, I'm the lawyer. Here's where I went to school. Here's what I've done. Often, my clients will ask, where'd you go to school? Where'd you graduate in the class? Um, How long have you been practicing? Is English your first language? So those are always questions, but not from other lawyers, but from clients. What tips would you give for young attorneys, especially young female attorneys, to not start internalizing from the get-go this sort of daily diminishment. For me, it's been accomplishments in academia and recognition from other lawyers and from judges. And uh, you have to focus on not internalizing it by not giving it the weight it shouldn't receive. So, you know, when my client asks a silly question, sometimes I'll say, well, you're not a lawyer. So, I went to law school. Let me tell you what I think. Um, And then one day a client said, well, this is how I think we should do this case. We're going to call this witness. We're going to call, we're going to cross-examine the officer in this manner. This is going to be my defense. And I said, well, what law school did you go to? And that sort of ended the conversation. And we were able to sort of resume me being the lawyer and the client being the client. It is an uphill battle, and, you know, I chose a profession and a particular section of the profession where, you know, you're dealing with individuals who are less educated, who are in very stressful circumstances, and who 
want help, but they're used to seeing a older lawyer, typically a white lawyer, typically a man. And do you think of a particular kind of white man, I think? <laughs> um, I think what we're talking about here, um, although we're talking about women in the profession particularly, we're talking about how gender operates generally as a social script and as a regulatory force. And when I graduated from law school, all I wanted to be was a North Carolina lawyer. I had applied to only one law school, for God's sake, which was a North, you know, I, I came from an old North Carolina family. I wanted to be a North Carolina lawyer. And what I found, because I'm an openly gay man and never made any bones about that, what I found when I went to interview for, for jobs was that, you know, the sort of big law law firms, the New York-based law firms, were interested in giving me job offers. North Carolina firms largely were not. And they were looking at the same person on paper, right? But in the interviews, it was very clear to me that what the hiring partners wanted was the sort of gregarious, slap you on the back, you can tell an off-color joke sort of hire. And they perceived that I was not that sort of hire. So I think that absolutely the profession is one in which the good old boys club is alive and well, and not even all the boys fit in, right? I mean, it, you know, gender is, is pernicious in that way, and it's not uh, in, you know, entirely a biological question, right? Uh, it's not just about women. So the sad irony is that the lawyer archetype that you described is someone who is assertive and is always challenging others. And yet, when women behave like that, they're penalized at a greater tick. So Clara, have you kind of felt yourself reprimanded for that kind of behavior of what the quote-unquote ideal lawyer looks like? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting question. Um, yes, I have. And for me, as a transactional attorney, so I, I don't go into court, so I don't really have these same kinds of experiences. But what I am is a type A, smart assertive woman. And, you know, nine years ago, young woman. So there. <laughs> You're still young. Still oh, young. Thank you. You're still young. Oh, thank you, dear. Um, but I had a situation where the person with whom I was working and doing work for, he and I just did not get along. And for people who know me, Clara not getting along with somebody is unusual. I'm a happy person. But it really was a what I felt at the time and I think one of the questions, you know, is it sexism or is it ageism or is it just a jerk? I'm not sure about this person, but it really was a question of I felt like any time I asked a question, it was a conflict. And he expected me to do what I was told and not ask questions about it. I, however, was not going to play that game. I wanted to learn and I wanted to know why. And I was going to point out mistakes if they were made, for the betterment of the client, for what we were doing. We're always taught that we have to own up to our mistakes and that we just move forward with them in the law. You can do that, right? But I felt like that was not appreciated. And being a person who was going to stand up for what I believed and what I thought was right was not the best way for my career in that aspect. And so I don't know if it was sexism or if it was ageism or if it was just a jerk. How do you determine, how do you toe the line between, is it sexism? Is it homophobia? Is it racism? Sometimes I think it doesn't even matter which ism it is, but you, you know, something's going on. And so 
for me, it was sort of the opposite. You know, early on in, in my practice, I had a very sort of different style. And because I spent a lot of time in one particular courtroom, it was much more of a collegial type atmosphere. And so I think because of that, people sort of perceived my niceness as they could get over on me. And so there was one particular opposing counsel that I dealt with a lot. And I think he sort of continued to sort of push me and push me and push me because I think he thought he could convince me to get his way until there was one particular day where he called me in my office and he was pushing me and pushing me and pushing me until my phone accidentally came unplugged. And it really accidentally came unplugged on him when we were in the heat of a discussion. But he thought I hung up on him. And when he called me back, from that moment on, our relationship completely changed. And it wasn't until he thought I became that aggressive person that his respect for me changed. And I thought, why did that have to be? We didn't have to have that adversarial type of relationship for us to be able to get along because we saw each other on a daily basis in the same courtroom. Yeah, I might be backtracking a a bit, but I think that's such an important point because it highlights what a double bind women in this profession and any other really face. Because if you just look at the way sex discrimination law has evolved, if you are sort of Ann Hopkins kind of plaintiff from a, from a famous sex discrimination case in which you are being penalized for being too aggressive, being too masculine, right, you're much more likely to win your suit than if you are a woman who is more true to socialized type. If you are really living out this sort of role that girls are socialized into from birth, which is don't take up space, don't talk too loudly, don't be too aggressive, etc. If you're being penalized for that kind of behavior, you're far less likely to be a successful sex discrimination plaintiff. And I think men don't really face that in a sort of existential sense in the way that women face it. And it's a real problem for women. I would agree with that. You are always trying to prove yourself, whether it's internally because of the idea of the imposter syndrome or if it's externally because you are an associate in a large firm and you're looking for work from partners who can give it to you or can give it to your colleague who's two years younger, who's a male. So I think that you are always having to do that to some degree. I'm not necessarily sure. It's not always sexism, right? A lot of times it's just who you get along with. For me personally, I think it's almost more an internal struggle. So, I mean, I really liked the imposter syndrome. I was really glad that Dr. Dickinson brought it up during the podcast because I think that's something that we as women and maybe as young attorneys as a whole have to deal with is that internal struggle of I'm good enough. I don't have to keep proving myself over and over. I know I can do this. And then having that external confidence to pull it off. The imposter syndrome is not exclusive to women. Every young lawyer, I believe, undergoes that imposter syndrome. Now, there may be additional baggage attached to women attorneys because of all the things we're talking about that may make it more difficult for them to get over that hurdle of the imposter syndrome. 
In court, the only way that I think it can be addressed is, at least for the bench, to ensure that all attorneys are being treated fairly. And if I see someone denigrating a woman attorney by saying, this young girl doesn't know what she's talking about, at that point, I think it's incumbent upon the bench to say, I'm sorry, that is not an appropriate way to address opposing counsel. I have heard on more than one occasion lawyers and litigants refer to other judges by either their first name or their last name. Female judges, colleagues on on the same level as me, refer to them by either their first or last name only without saying judge. And to me, that is an element of inherent sexism. And whenever I hear that, I just look up at them and say, oh, do you mean judge? And I fill in the name because I will not let anyone address someone as one of my colleagues without addressing them as judge. I had two judges, actually. I was seated at the table with our first chair, and both judges said, I don't want to hear from the first chair. I want to hear from Miss Clough. And that was a very affirming moment for me. Uh, so that really had, a, had resonance because they wanted to hear what my opinion was. And they gave me an opportunity to be heard. And that was something that I thought judges could do as well. You know, the best example of that I've ever seen was early in my career. And I was sitting in the courtroom waiting for a motion to be heard. And a male lawyer with his young associate were sitting at the table arguing in front of a judge whom I knew well. And the male lawyer kept leaning down and having the young lady whisper in his ear what he needed to say next. And the judge, whom I will not name, is a great North Carolina judge, now deceased, who I just love to death, put his pen down, pulled his glasses off, looked down over the bench and said, Howard, sit down and shut up and let her talk. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that is the finest. I mean, that was, that was a great moment because, I mean, she had prepared the case. She knew it. He didn't. He was just showing off. And the judge intervened. And I, I, I mean, I almost jumped up and said, hallelujah. Sometimes we do things that are not consciously aimed at correcting things, but it's just because it's the information we want. I I had a very similar situation when I was on the bench. I was hearing, I think, an alimony trial. And the lead attorney, who was an older male, had a young female associate. And I was getting numbers from all over the place. But the only person who had numbers that made sense was the young female attorney. And I said, hers are the only numbers that I think make sense. I want to hear what she has to say. Now, did I do that specifically to embolden a female attorney? No, that was certainly not my purpose. But the fact that I did that, and I would have done it if it was a male, but it it clearly would have more of an impact because it was a woman to give affirmation to the fact that she can swim with the sharks or, you know, play with the big boys uh, in court. When Rita Grigio said she doesn't think you can really change someone's mind and she picks her battles, how do you pick those battles? First of all, I think you always need to pick your battles. I mean, you want to win, right? If you just go in fighting and flailing around, you're never going to win. So you need to always pick your battles. Um, And I have this philosophy that I thankfully got from my father early on before I ever started practicing law, and that is just embrace, I call it, embrace your inner bee. I won't use the wrong word here, but always be polite, never lose it, and when you've got that sort of steely strength with this 
politeness on the outside, you know, people don't quite know what to do with that. And you can get away with a lot more than if you just go running in, complaining, and flailing about on something. I've all, every time I have raised an issue about not being treated fairly, I have given it very careful thought before I've done it, and I've picked who I was going to talk to about it. And knock on wood, I'm with the same law firm for 40 years now and have had a good outcome every time I've had to raise the issue. But I think at the end of the day, one thing you always have to be prepared to do is to walk away. Because if you raise an issue, you've picked your fight, it doesn't turn out your way, you have to make a personal decision about whether or not you can live with that. Because within law firms, culture is critical. And you're not happy with that culture, you really should not stay with that law firm. And I think that's probably the most important thing for people to learn, is if you have picked the wrong place, you'll find out pretty quickly. And you need to think about making a change. For a long time, I was sort of of the mindset that I didn't always speak up. But then I think I, I, I reached a point in my career where I realized that I had an obligation to speak up, that I had to be mindful of those that were coming behind me and that it was critical that, that, I, that I spoke up. So you have to decide who it is that, that you speak to. You have to find allies in the workplace or, or wherever it is. But I've decided that I can't let things go by, that I have to speak up to leave wherever I am a better place than I found it. And I think people have to recognize that longstanding cultural norms do not change overnight, that going in and making one complaint or saying, hey, I'm not happy here, is not going to turn a law firm on its head and change it. Typically, these things have to be done incrementally. But as Allison said, I think you have the obligation to at least start the conversation. And then if nothing changes at the next appropriate time, to continue it and revisit it and not let it die. I think there's room here for a programmatic response, both from law schools, from law firms, and from the profession generally. Sometimes I think we ought to sort of follow a sales model. My partner is in sales, and a big part of the corporate structure is when you're in sales, you're told no so often it can be soul-crushing, right? So there is a programmatic response by the company to get people together and to talk about, um, you know, what it feels like to be told no in this instance and how to deal with that and how not to, because of uh, what we've been calling imposter syndrome in this on this panel, uh, I don't think that's done enough in the profession. I don't think it's done enough for women. I don't think it's done enough for young people who are entering the profession. It is done, but I don't think it's done often enough. Having mentors and having really strong role models is important, too. So whether it's it's the, the judges on the bench or if it's the person that you're reporting to within the law firm or a mentor that's been given to you by the law firm versus a mentor that you have worked with because you have common interests, all of those people are important in a non-programmatic way, but in an organic way of raising people's confidence young attorney, male, female alike, in their skill set and what, the, the, what they can do. So I think that's also, we talk about mentoring a little bit too much, quite honestly. It's like, oh, just get a mentor. It'll be great. Um, but really, it's about building those relationships and building your confidence in who you are and what you are bringing to the table and 
people who have been there before can help you see that and can help you navigate those kinds of minefields. I just think teaching your daughters to say no and not feeling bad for saying no would work as well because we are, we're always wanting to say yes and please. And when you say no, the whole world sort of tilts back and stops for a second. I think we taught women to say no more often. It would go a very long way. And with that, I want to thank all the participants today for such a wonderful discussion. We really want to thank Wake Forest University, especially the law school, business school, provost, Pro Humanitate Institute, AJC Center, and the Women's Center. I'm Kimber Russell. This episode was produced by Kyle McEntee. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Thank you to Olympia Duhart, Marissa Olson, Ashley Milne-Tite, Karen Ulrich-Stacy, and Susan Poser. Women in the Law is a production of Law School Transparency. To learn more about Law School Transparency, visit lawschooltransparency.com. To learn more about this mini-series, visit lstradio.com women.